What we find is fiber communities grow, what other communities around them are shrinking. This is episode 306 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. While at the Broadband Community Summit in Austin, Texas, Christopher spoke with community leaders, advocates for universal broadband, and consultants. In this episode of the podcast, he sits down with Doug Dawson from CCG Consulting, one of the guys who's been in the business for decades. Christopher and Doug touched on a lot of issues, including his work with municipalities and publicly owned internet infrastructure. He talks about choosing a consultant, marketing and costs, as well as how to deal with misinformation. Doug and Christopher also spend time talking about the 5G hype, rollout and specs, and whether or not it really is the solution for rural America. They talk about the Connect America Fund, and Doug shares his thoughts and predictions about the repeal of federal network neutrality protections and what it means for municipal networks and small ISPs. Check out ccgcomm.com for more about Doug's firm. And be sure to visit Pots and Pans by ccg.com. That's Doug's blog. Read some of his excellent articles on telecommunications and related policy. Now here's Christopher with Doug Dawson of CCG Consulting. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance with another show coming out of Austin, Texas at the Broadband Community Summit here in lovely Austin, Texas, uh, right at the edge of Hill Country. Um, Speaking today with Doug Dawson, the founder and president of CCG Consulting. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Chris. So, Doug, uh, you just mentioned that uh, 20-year anniversary. You've been doing this for some time. We have been doing this for some time, and uh, that's my firm, CCG Consulting. I've been doing it for quite a bit longer than that. So, uh, first telecom job in 1975. There's this demeaning saying that those who can't teach, but you've run many of these companies. Yes, uh, you know, hands-on experience in in, uh, ISPs, telcos, cable companies, electric companies, all those things, you bet. Right, so you probably go way back to, um, you know, when people thought, hey, broadband over power lines is going to change everything. We're going to have real competition. Yeah, Yeah, it didn't quite go as they expected, did it? No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We were just, uh, we did an interview recently with Michael Render, who uh, we were going back and talking about the the old days when there was like three thousand passings of fiber networks, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and you know I'm just curious um, when did you start offering advice and what was the background of that? Were people just were cities coming to you or how did you get into that market? When I first started CCG Consulting, uh, we we started it with the 1996 Telecom Act, and so our, our concept was let's help people become CLEX at that time, competitive telephone companies. But even before that, I had been working in another consultant, and we launched. I launched several dozen dial-up companies. Mm-hmm. You know, so we even back then it's like, how do you get into the business? How do you find your customers? I mean, just the same old. How do you launch a successful broadband business? Hard to call dial-up broadband, but at the time it was revolutionary. So, um, and so I've been doing it ever since then. When I first founded CCG, my first clients were telcos, and because they wanted to start competitive ventures. Very soon thereafter, all these folks who were not telcos started coming to me. And over the years, uh, I'd say half of my new business now is municipalities. Still have a lot of telco work. Uh, but we almost entirely work in competitive markets. We don't really do much legacy work, even for all those clients. We're, we help them with their competitive arms. So you have a lot of clients both public and private, but they're almost all competitive, like they're yes. new entrants. This is all people that are overbuilding networks, yes. Right. So. 
So you also do Pots and Pans blog. Um, uh, it's, uh, I forget exactly what the URL is. Pots and Pans by CCG. It's a wonderful daily story. I've, as someone who um, had long done daily stories, now Lisa Gonzalez does all the, the writing for our daily stories. I know it's a grind. You seem to find um, interesting insights to get a story up every single day that uh, I usually find quite compelling. You know, this industry, it's not hard. In fact, I throw away three topics a week. It's like the topics just come to you. Mm -hmm. uh, Because I talk to folks every day and they say, you know, what do you think about this? And boom, there's a blog, right? Right. So it's, it's amazing what's going on. When I first started five years ago, it was a lot harder. I had to struggle, like, what the heck am I going to write about tomorrow? And now it's just the opposite. Mm -hmm. It's like, what am I not going to write about? Right. So let's let's dig into um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you when uh, when I finally cornered you and <laughs> got you into our studio here um, was was any lessons that you've drawn from all of the years of working with municipalities that might be relevant for someone who is in a community where they're going to be starting a network or they there's a very good chance they're going to be starting a network. There's a lot of lessons. One is um, which people don't realize it costs a lot more money to get started. Communities will put together $50,000 to do a feasibility study and just not realize it's going to cost a whole lot more than that before you get into the business. And so, so you can't underestimate the cost of getting going. The cost of launching a new business is, you know, there's a lot to get done. Um, we always do what we, you know, Gantt charts, which are project plans for a, for a new fiber network. And literally they will have 3000 tasks on them that have to be finished everything from marketing to the network construction items. And so, uh, and so it's a complex business, um, and so the second piece of advice is go find the experts who can help you do it and, and get folks who have done it before. There's a, a lot of consulting firms out there who are good at one piece of it, but you need to find somebody who does everything you're looking for because there's not very many of us. On that point, I think, would you agree that um, I, there's some consultants that uh, I think if we wanted to, we could talk about how we think that they um, are ones we wouldn't recommend cities come to. But in general, I think... Every consultant has strong points and weak points. And it's not so much like we're going to find the best consultant. It's we're going to find the consultant that matches our desires and needs and and that sort of thing. Is that That, right? That's exactly right. So, you know, um, there are one or two bad consultants, but hopefully people don't hire them. But most of the consultants are pretty good in this industry. And and so, you know, the question is, where do you want to take this thing? So if you you know you're going to build a wireless network, let's, you know, talk to someone who's done a lot of that. If you want to build fiber, make sure you get that. Uh, The number one issue nowadays that I give people advice on is, you know, the engineering part's easy. There's a dozen engineering firms in the country who can tell you how much the fiber network's going to cost. That Once you have that number, you're sort of done that. The hard part's raising the money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you don't already know how you're going to raise the money, then you better pick a consultant who can help you figure that out. Because that's, that's 80% of the actual grind of getting one of these things done is money. And that's the one thing that stops projects from getting finished nowadays. So, you know, that's everything else is... Everything else is knowable. That one's just really hard, you know. But but if you're in a city who just knows that you're going to pay with this by a bond, then you know that's not such an issue there. But most people don't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you have to get very creative. Uh, and usually, it's multiple sources of revenue to get these things done. So the, you know, so so look forward. You know, what are you going to do after you get the study? You know, you don't really want to change horses in the middle of the stream. So pick a consultant who who's looking out at the end game, and and, and we each have a different view of how to get there. And you know, make sure. We, when you interview us to ask those questions, I mean, you know, what do you, what do we do next to make sure that they know what they're, where you're going? So, 
I suspect that a lot of the cities and probably the other uh, private companies as well that, that come to you um, who are established are coming to you and saying, hey, you know, we've hit this speed bump or we're concerned about this issue. Um, is that is that something you're often dealing with, like sort of troubleshooting and evaluating? Yeah, I mean, our company, actually, our major practice is we try to launch, we launch these new markets, but we also help people take old markets and make them better. You know, if you built it 10 years ago, but you're still not making as much money as you showed, why aren't you? And let's go in and fix those problems. Uh, and so, well, you know, we, on a new guy, we try to make sure that we've addressed all this up front uh, because, you know, there's 20 keys to success. Mm-hmm. You know, any one of those is not done right and you're not going to do as well as you ought to. The network has to be built right. You've got to have a solid marketing plan. You know, again, the money you've got to have. You've got to have the right people, not overstaffed. You can't have expenses too high. You know, nowadays, lean and mean is the way to go. And so, you know, you have to have all of those pieces in place. Um, and, you know, and sometimes that doesn't fit very nicely into a municipal structure. So that becomes a real issue of how do we get it in here? How do you govern it? You know, one of my best stories on, on things not to do was Bristol, Virginia was one of the first cities to build a broadband network. Six months after they built it, the city council came in and cut all the rates by 15% because it was an election year. Um, and of course, that all of a sudden took this company on a great trajectory and put them straight underwater because they didn't have that much profit. Uh, and so, you know, six months later, they were raising them back up again when they saw the consequence of that. So you have to shield these businesses from politics, which is not an easy challenge. Uh, so, you know, that's one of the other big lessons is don't, you know, do not let these become political issues, because if you do, then they will absolutely always run into problems. The successful cities have somehow kept them apart, and that's not easy to do, but uh, but they've been able to do that. So, Right. I think it's, it is worth noting some of the structures we've seen are where the city council is not the direct oversight board. There's a board that is uh, maybe appointed when staggered terms so that right. a single shift in public attitude can't result in a major change um, to a utility that has to have long-term plans. Well, and you want that. That's exactly the structure we recommend. And that board has to be engaged people who have a very background. You want a banker on there. You want maybe local tech people on there. And you want some local businessmen on there who understand how to run a business. I mean, that's, you know, so you don't need fiber folks because, you know, your board doesn't have to know your business. They have to know how businesses work. And so what you don't want is is a board also made up of other local politicians. And that's the only people running it because now you haven't shielded it from politics. So. One of the things you mentioned is the thing that I, I, I tend to think is possibly the single biggest problem cities have run into when they've built these networks, and that's marketing. I think you, you noted the overstaffing, and that's a very serious concern, but the, the marketing seems to be something where cities that try to do it in-house, they don't bring enough external, like non-city fo- people who have a different focus to it, um, they seem to struggle. There's probably been 10 fiber projects that have struggled, a few even failed, Almost universally, they were because of lack of sales. There's literally been city projects who launched, opened their doors, didn't even make any public announcements, and assumed that people would just come and sign up. They don't. Mm-hmm. And so you get about 20 to 30% of a market of people who just hate the incumbent cable company or something. And after that, it's hard work. It's just like selling anything else. And so, you know, cities don't have that mindset. So you better bring somebody in who does. I mean, you don't, you don't want your general manager to be a guy with 30 years of city experience. You want him to be a guy who's been in a commercial company. So, uh, so that can be fixed. I mean, some of those ones who struggled, you know, then we came along and said, here's how you fix this. And 
sure enough, they went out and, and did the sales. Uh, the, probably the best example of that is uh, MyNet, a, a, a municipality in Oregon. They did exactly what I just said. They did no marketing. Three years later, they looked up. I think they had a 35% market penetration. You know, they hired me. We came in and looked at it, figured out how to make it better. Today, they are they might be the highest one. They have over. It's now approaching 85% market penetration, which means oh, they wow. basically have every broadband customer that is in the market. That's why so, you, you mentioned this yes. morning on your panel that yeah. that they're going around to, to nearby population centers to encourage more people to come in. They've right. they've run out of people to sell. Right. They're, to. So they're now they're now recruiting customers to come right. to town. That's their strategy to grow is to actually bring in more people to homes there, and it's working. Uh, they have there. It's you know what we find is fiber communities grow. What the communities around them are shrinking. So there's new houses being built. So, so before we we change to a different topic, I just want to throw something at you, and that's um, you know Christopher Yu has come out with a study that's being repeated um, from University of Pennsylvania. We've done rebuttals on our site. Um, you know Stephen Titch has probably taken aim at you many times over the years. There's many people who have been paid to say municipalities just can't do this; they all fail. It's a disaster. How do how do you respond in a minute to that sort of thing? First off, municipalities have a different way of measuring success, and so success to them is a business that completely is cash self-supporting. So as long as you're generating enough cash to pay operating expenses, cover the debt, and pay for the capital you need every year to keep growing the business, then they think that that's a success. No city's upset if they make more than that. They like you know, there's nothing wrong with putting money back in the city coffers. But you know, most of the most of the projects have gotten to that point. Now, when you look at a business that's just breaking even with cash, which they're going check, we are completely successful. Accounting books, it'll look terrible because fiber projects are capital intensive and they'll have a mountain of depreciation expense. You know, the, the city of Lafayette, Louisiana has been fighting a public battle for the last five years because their books show a loss, yet they're generating very positive cash and they're growing and they're now starting to build out of their money into the surrounding communities. They're completely successful, uh, but but uh, folks point to them and go, they're not successful. But And just because they have an accounting number loss, which is completely driven by depreciation, you know, they never intended to measure their company that way. They have no reason to do so. And there's plenty of commercial companies who have book losses but are successful that, you know, they don't cover depreciation. That's not how you, that's not how you measure this kind of business. The infrastructure companies are not the same as retail companies or something mm -hmm. like that. So, so the answer is there are some municipal failures, but most of the ones that those guys point out in their articles are actually successful. I know that. I see their books. I'm in the books of, you know, 100 different companies. I know what they're really – making and you know what so when they tell the story that they're profitable i know if it's true or not and most of them are successful so uh i want to get to a different topic you've covered this really in depth in fact i think you've had some of the clearest writing on this um 5g is going to make all of this pointless because we're all going to be connected in a utopia of of um incredibly high capacity services that are magic I actually have a new thought on that that I haven't made it to my blog yet. I'm I'm starting to wonder if there's actually any going to be any builders of 5G out there. All three of the major telcos have made it very clear in the last six months that they're backing out of the residential broadband business. Uh, the cable companies are have gigabit networks or will have gigabit networks, so they're not going to be spending money on 5G. And if the telcos don't do it, then who the heck is who are these companies are going to step in and spend billions of dollars to do this? You know, right, but, Verizon presumably. still might, but I'm pretty sure AT&T is really not after this. And CenturyLink, the new management from Level 3, has made it clear they are definitely not going to be doing this. Uh, so there may be nobody building those networks. But, but even if they do, if somebody does, those networks still need a lot of fiber. 
Uh, they're, they're really capital intensive. They're large investments. They're still going to have infrastructure kind of returns. We're not even convinced that it's actually cheaper than building fiber to the home. You know, you're replacing a fiber drop with electronics. That may not be cheaper. Uh, you know, it could. It, but right now, that stuff doesn't even exist. So we're we're talking about this fantasy future business that's going to solve all the broadband problems in America. And there, you can't even. No one's making any equipment to do that. I've got a long history of watching wireless ventures fail because the technology never worked right. So, you know, I, I don't trust anything until I see it working in the field. And we're probably five years away from actually working equipment. So uh, it has great promise. Quite honestly, if it works, the municipalities will be using 5G. Why would you not if that's a better alternative than fiber to the home? So, you know, if that's a better technology, then people will build it. Uh, but I, I don't see you know, someone making these huge investments and definitely no one's going to make these investments in a rural community. It costs just as much to put the fiber in for 5G as it costs to put the fiber in for fiber of the home. So if that's not feasible today in a rural community, that's not going to be feasible for 5G either. Right. Rural communities are never going to see 5G. I go to places today who haven't seen 4G yet. One of the things that, that I like about you writing about 5G and people, if they go to your blog, you have a tag 5G. They could just focus on that if they want to. But you talk about how things are likely to roll out, and it sounds like you're still working over how you yeah. think that. But one of the things that I thought was particularly uh, well done was discussing that the 5G standard, which is not yet completed, you're talking those 5G, that gear is not going to be out for many years. Um, but it is expecting, we're expecting to see like a requirement of 20 gigabit to each wireless node. And you were pointing out that that's not really how a lot of these 5G companies are going to do it. You know, AT&T and Verizon, a number of the times in which in five years I might have a phone and it might say 5G in the, you know, in the status bar. I might be on a node that isn't doing that, that doesn't have that capacity, but they'll just still call it 5G and they'll have wireless backhaul. And my experience won't be that different from 4G. Well, first off, let's talk about 5G cellular. You know, it took us 10 years last year where we actually saw the very first 4G actual phones. And so we think we're at the end of the 4G product. We actually just finally got to the 4G product. What we had was 3.1, 3.2, 3.3, and now we finally made it to 4. It's going to be the same migration to get to 5. Verizon says they're going to roll out 5G next year. They're not. They're going to roll out 4.1G because there's 13 different aspects of, of 5G in the cellular world that, that you have to meet, and that's the sort of the standard. And so they will start picking away at little pieces of those new improvements. Uh, but even when they're all finished, 5G cellular, if you go right back to the specs, it says deliver 100 megabit download, 20 megabit up, uh, and that's what they're shooting for. They're not shooting for gigabit cellular. That's not part of the, of the specification. They're shooting. The main reason behind 5G cellular is to do Internet of Things. Mm -hmm. A cell site's going to be able to talk to 100,000 devices. Today, it's way smaller than that, which is why, you know, when you're in a convention center like this, you can't get a cell phone connection. There's not enough connections on the cell site. And, and their picture, Verizon and AT&T believe that they want to conquer the IoT world, but they're starting from a massive deficit because today every device is connected to Wi-Fi. You know, they may not ever get there. They, you know, I don't know why people would pay a subscription to use their IoT devices if their home Wi-Fi connection does it for free. So I think they have a very big uphill battle. Uh, the 5G that they're really talking about, and people conflate the two issues, is 5G point-to-point -point radios. Those can do gigabit speeds. That's the stuff, though, that you're going to need a fiber right up to those things to work. If you do wireless backhaul on them, we're going to end, we're going to end up with residential overbuilt neighborhoods that have 100 meg service, just like you already get today. 
nothing wrong with that. If you build that in a town that doesn't have broadband, that'll be awesome. But it, it's not automatically going to be gigabit, not unless you put fiber everywhere. And that means fiber to every one of those things. on Every third pole is going to want fiber to it, and that's pretty expensive. The other topic I really wanted to talk about, and this is something where, again, I feel like you've covered extremely well, is the Connect America Fund. You outlined in a way that I hadn't seen anyone else do, and frankly, I still haven't seen in any um, mainstream you know, telecom traditional press reporting how AT&T is spending its, like, what, $2.5 billion it's getting and what people primarily in the South and in Appalachia are getting from AT&T's subsidies uh, to expand rural broadband. So let's just let's just start there. What is, what is AT&T delivering with the $2.5 billion that we're giving it? Well, let's go back to the beginning because what happened with, with the CAF-2 fund was up to the 11th hour, that was going to be a reverse auction where everybody could come in and bid for that money. And all of a sudden, the order came out and it floored all of us because they just gave all of the money to the big telcos and no one else got a penny of it. And this was under Obama's estimate. And this was Yes, it was. And, and, and so obviously, the lobbyists you know, from the big companies won their battle. So they just said, here's your billions of dollars. Go do what you need to do. And their goal was to do 10 one megabit speeds, which it, even then was already obsolete. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't run a home on a 10 one connection today. So it's, it's a ridiculous goal. The CAF2 fund says, make your best effort to go out and do that. And, and we know what's going to happen. They're going to run out and they're going to build homes and, and they're going to increase speeds. And when they run out of money, they're going to stop. So even all the people who are covered by that footprint that they're supposed to cover will not be covered. So some folks will get no improvements. AT&T is using this as the way to tear down rural copper. So their solution is in about 90% of the places is they're just going to start selling folks cellular connections, which they already can do today. So they, they are going to use this money to sort of beef up the transport to rural cellular towers. But, you know, cellular connections... Anything wireless data-wise has this curve where it says the further you are away from the tower, the speeds drop up really fast. And when you go to rural America, it's not very, you know, this, these speeds that they're talking about delivering only work for a first mile or two. And it's not very hard to be three or four or five or six miles from the nearest cellular tower. And they're not going to build thousands of new cellular towers. And so all these folks that are supposedly going to be getting these fast speeds will get three megabits and they'll mm-hmm. get it and, and they'll get on a very expensive $80 a month cellular plan with a data cap on it. Uh, and just, you know, like they do today, it's not going to make their lives all that much better. Even, now, if you're really close to the cell tower and that technology, you might get 15 megabits. That's sort of the best speeds we can do today. That's not going to be very many people. And that's not broadband. Right. Even by the FCC's definition, it's not broadband. But in real life, it's not broadband. You can't you know, I have a 60 megabit connection home with three people on it and we crowd each other out. Yes. (laughs) It's pretty amazing how we've changed how much broadband we need. And the reason for that is we do simultaneous things today. It's not that we have applications that need broadband. It's we're trying to do six of them at the same time. And boy, they interfere with each other like crazy and it doesn't work. So, Well, the vision of the Connect America Fund was something that I really supported the idea being that rather than envisioning a an endless supply of yearly subsidies for operating expenses the vision was that we would do one time larger capital expenditures and that we would not need to keep subsidizing them but it looks to me like the way it's been implemented is actually just that now rather than doing yearly subsidies we're going to do subsidies every decade because there's no way we're not going to give more money to to upgrade those people that are getting 3 megabits they're going to need something better yeah we 
and what's going to happen is the phone companies have all made it clear when that money runs out, they're not doing any more. They are not doing any more work on rural copper. So we just gave billions of dollars to beef up rural copper, which was already old, bad, and, and not adequate. We've got to a point where people now in rural areas don't want better broadband. They're demanding better broadband. Right. So the politicians in those areas will not be able to withstand that political pressure. So we're going to have to do it all over again. That money could have seeded gigantic fiber builds if they would have just put it open to auction, all sorts of folks would have come in and built fiber instead of beefing up the copper. It would have not solved the whole footprint, but we might have served, solved 25% of it with fiber. So we, so we ended up making no permanent solutions. Um, you know, we, I'm, you know, I just said AT&T is going to use cellular. You know, Frontier and CenturyLink are just beefing up their DSL on and on really old inadequate lines. That's even worse than what AT&T is doing. So, do you have any any quick takes on discussions about sort of CenturyLink and Frontier, Windstream not having a viable path forward, and us having a sudden moment in the near future where they're just not serving, they just give up and walk away from rural areas? Well, I, I just actually wrote a blog, and I, I, I don't remember when they're published exactly, but it says CenturyLink has basically announced they're backing out of the residential business. They are no longer going to support residential broadband, which means they're going to let rural copper go. Uh, they are going to probably not build any more fiber to the home because the company just got basically taken over by level three management, and they're going to, enter, they're going to focus on enterprise. So that company is going to be out of the business, which means... It, we're going to see the same thing we saw. You, you want a good example of that? Uh, Verizon tried to sell West Virginia property off for almost 15 years. And during that whole time, they made zero investment in the state because they were always this close to getting a buyer, right? So that's 15 years where they completely neglected the copper. When, by the time Frontier bought it, it was completely a pile of crap. You know, they're struggling to make it better, but you can't really fix something that's been neglected for that long without keeping it up. They're going to stop doing any repairs in rural areas, all these companies are going to cut back their employees. In your state, Cook County, one of the reasons they decided to build a fiber network is CenturyLink had one technician for the entire county, an entire county. Mm-hmm. So if you called with a phone problem or a data problem, it could be three weeks before he ever even got out to see you. And normally, and then he would go, gee, there's really nothing I can do for you because that takes capital money and we don't have any money to do that. That's what we're going to see in rural areas is no response for problems. Uh, so yeah, so even if you get that nice 15 meg DSL today, the first time you have a problem, you may be done forever. They may never fix it. So let's finish up with a discussion briefly about net neutrality. Um, I, I'm curious how your your different customers and clients responded. I, I know that there was a division among municipalities, none of whom, as far as I can tell, really have any intention of violating net neutrality. But there was a, a mixed response as to whether or not they supported the FCC taking action on it. I don't have a client who violates net neutrality, and little guys really can't. You don't have the market power. But you say that, but they could. Because what we've always seen, so, you know, the way net neutrality is going to get violated is, you know, AT&T and the big guys are going to mine, data mine their customers, and they're going to do all the same stuff that everyone's freaking out about Facebook for. They're already doing it quietly behind the scenes. You know, AT&T has a way better look at what you do than, than Facebook does. AT&T sees all of your emails, and they see all of your web searches. They know everything about you, Right. And so what I suspect is going to happen is there's going to be a, a group of marketing guys pop up who will pay these little guys X number of dollars per customer for their data. And at that point, some of them may decide to get into the business. They may mm-hmm. say, well, heck, I would love to get $8 per customer for a year. All I have to do is give them my, my you know, URL search data. I'm not so sure that some of these guys won't violate net neutrality 
you know, money is a strong incentive. Right now, none of them do because they don't have the market power to do it. Right. They don't, and they don't have the technical work. They don't know how to do this stuff. They can't mine their data as customers. They, but uh, but I'm not so sure that they won't in the long run. I think municipalities are the safest bet. I you know, they will not violate their customers' trust. But I think a lot of the little commercial guys very well might. So. And I think it's worth noting for people that are very technical, um, net neutrality is sort of is separate in some ways from the privacy issues. But in the way that it's worth talking about, in the way that every American really thinks about it, they're all wrapped up in the one. And that's exactly it's whether or not you're getting the broadband service that you need and want. Right. I mean, the other aspect is, you know, limiting web searches and, you know, fast lanes, slowing down stuff. The little guys will probably never do that. I mean, that's just bad customer service. Mm hmm. Because that's their one competitive advantage over who, because they're all competing against the bigger guys almost always. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that's the one area they won't go to. So, but you know, we'll see. I, they could surprise me there too. So, sure. I'm curious what you've seen in the last few years. In the in the 2015 order, when um, net neutrality was established, that was also the time when when the FCC, Tom Wheeler, led the FCC in overruling um, North Carolina and Tennessee's uh, barriers against municipal networks. Some of the barriers. That led to a spike, a lot of news stories, a lot of cities considering networks, many more feasibility studies than we had seen in the past. We've not yet seen you know, a doubling. We've seen an increase of cities getting into this business. Um, recently, with the net neutrality repeal, we're seeing, again, tremendous interest from cities and activists that are getting organized. Is this space going to start really growing much more rapidly? It's actually growing a lot more rapidly, you think, because where all the growth is is in public-private partnerships. Cities are going, look, I will kick in some money to help you build. And then an ISP is doing the actual construction, running the networks. And you don't think of those as municipal projects so much. And a lot of them are very quiet and they don't make big press. But that's where we're seeing all the growth. And so so I think, you know, most cities don't really want to be ISPs. If they're not already with their own power company or something where they're used to a technical interface with customers, that they're still scared to death of that. As well, they should be. I think you're, there's actually more interest than I've ever seen. But probably three quarters of those are headed towards public-private partnerships. Mm. And so, you know, they don't really care what the model is to get broadband to their community. You know, they don't, cities don't feel like they have to be the one to drive it. They just want people to get the speeds they want and they want the ISP to be someone responsible and they would like, and they would like that to be someone local, which is not always possible, but you know, they would love the profits not to run to some big city. But at this point, cities go i need broadband and anything that gets me that is acceptable they they're a lot less picky than they were five years ago are you seeing the public private partnerships getting executed because that's i agree with you there's been a tremendous interest in that um but you know axia exited the u.s market recently um sci-fi is now working with at least two cities um possibly more in the near future but there was five years where they were talking with many cities and there's all this talk of public private partnerships but they weren't executed the answer is yes. The, those guys were going after fairly big towns. And so that's never, that has not gone very far. Because, you know, when you walk into a town where it's a $50 million investment or $100 million investment, there's not many players in that market. So what we're seeing, though, is public private partnerships that are out, you know, in a lakefront in Minnesota and a little mountain town in Colorado. And they're, they're, and they're working together to bring broadband to 100 people or 500 people or 1,000 people. And there's a lot of those going on. Okay. So very slowly, and, and they're mostly working with either, um, you know, independent telephone companies who are doing a tremendous amount of this expansion out of their own pocket. 
Uh, there's, you know, some wire, very good WISP wireless companies who are doing it with the right technology who are doing a pretty good job. And there's, there's a few independent guys who are just doing it. I have a client in Kansas who's out of his own pocket has built five or 600 miles of fiber at home in the most rural places you can't imagine that would make a good business plan, but he's making a really good go at it. Uh, so, you know, it, very slowly they're picking it off. Unfortunately, when you look at the map of who doesn't have it, and you plot all these out, it still doesn't color very much of it from, you know, not having fiber to fiber. But but that's where the growth is. Unfortunately, I don't know that there's going to be an easy answer to the towns that need a 50 or $100 million investment because that's hard money to raise for anybody. And, yeah, those companies who tried it, they, they really didn't succeed. It's, um, I don't hear a lot of new ones coming along. We'll see. Well, thanks for your insights today. It's been a really good conversation, uh, getting some candid answers to some of these things where we all see just press releases regurgitated in the press, unfortunately. Yeah, well, that's 5G for you. That's, uh, that's technology by press release. So. Right. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. You're welcome. That was Doug Dawson from CCG Consulting. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thanks to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed to Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 306 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>